Hi, everyone. This is Mo Zafsal, Chief Investment Officer for EFG. You're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. Um, we have two very special guests uh, today. Uh, we have Don Rismiller and Jason Trenneth. I'll call the A-team, the original A-team from Strategis. Um, and uh, Jason, now, how, how many years ago did you start? I, I lost count. I've, I've, like 20 so years or something. Be, uh, <laughs> it'll be 17 years this wow. uh, this September. Yep, uh, no, September 6th. It was absolutely amazing. I, I still remember the first day you started and uh, yeah. it's been uh, just a huge uh, success story and uh, both uh, Don and, and yourself have done, and of course, uh, the rest of the great team, uh, strategists have done an amazing job o- over these years and we're uh, certainly a very happy client uh, of uh, of strategists. So um, let's go straight on because there's a huge amount to discuss and to think about as it comes to the, the US economy and, and strategy. So maybe Don, if I start with you on the um, on the macro side, um, and then uh, I'll um, you know, delve into into your output with uh, with Jason. But um, you know, where do you see the economy? Obviously, much stronger than people anticipated. Certainly at the beginning of the year. Um, and obviously, you know, interest rate debate is still very much there. Um, you know, what's the state of, uh, state of play as far as you're concerned at the moment? And, uh, um, you know, how do you think the, the U.S. economy is going to shape up as we go into 2024? Moz, that's a great question, and I'm happy to be here to offer some thoughts on it. So the concern coming into the year was that the economy was imbalanced. So if the purpose of macroeconomic policy in general is to balance supply and demand, that's not been happening really for the better part of three years now due to very large global shocks, health shocks, geopolitical shocks. Uh, And so we came into the year with an inflation problem in many countries. And so there are central banks with mandates to fix that. They have to do something. Uh, And and so if we have a period where it looks like demand is above supply, creating inflation, the choice is to bring supply up or to bring demand down. Central banks don't operate on the supply side of the economy. They operate on the demand side of the economy. So they won't make oil or wheat or cars or semiconductors. They will use their tools to impact demand. And so as we have not seen a full flush in the supply chain when it comes to labor, there are still concerns. There are certainly parts of the global supply chain that have normalized the uh, supply chain for goods. uh, If we look at purchasing managers indices or supplier delivery times or measures uh, of, of pressure on those type of items, that's all flushed. But domestically, especially for the U.S., there's still an imbalance in the local labor market. So we still have about 10 million job openings for 6 million unemployed individuals. Now, having a strong labor market has been good for the the first half of this year. It's one of the ways the economy has grown. And in fact, there were many risks over uh, the last few quarters, bank failures, additional stresses in those type of channels. There's one point where our recession checklist, which has a variety of items we look at to gauge whether we're heading for a recession, they're all leading indicators. That checklist basically had everything checked off except the labor market. Now, the labor market really matters. uh, And so as the labor market has continued to show expansion, some other items on that list, for instance, the housing part uh, of the US market has started to bottom. If the labor market persists in strength, then the economy can persist uh, in growth. The problem is the type of growth we're getting is still imbalanced. So we don't really get rid of the fundamental risk that we started out the year with, which is the type of growth we're seeing coming against a backdrop of a very tight labor market doesn't create a great runway to start a new cycle. Then we have to take into account some of the lag effects of things that have already happened. So the Fed, for instance, has already been aggressive in pursuing tighter monetary policy. They've slowed down to 25 basis point rate hikes, but they've already broken some things 
in the banking system this year. We are seeing bank lending standards tightening in the senior loan officer survey. We know that has a lead. And the developing question from here is when do we get to a point where that story can change? The key for many central banks is to avoid the stop and go policy that created the problems of the 1970s. So in the 1970s, the Fed had to fight inflation three times. They never anchored inflation expectations. So when you had a recession in the 1970s, inflation did come down. But as soon as that episode was over, it shot back up uh, and actually accelerated it. It made a new high. So we're probably closing in on something that looks like a, a peak Fed funds rate. But then the idea will be to hold that rate into 2024. And if that will affect the economy with a lag, we're not through the tighter policy effects just yet. We may be hitting the point where policy tightening uh, reaches some sort of peak number, peak nominal number, but we're not through the impact of that. And so longer term, the big question we're asking is, where exactly is the point where you can declare victory? The case for the, the softer landing probably involves declaring victory when inflation gets close to target rather than being exactly 2.0%, because that last bit of inflation is probably really expensive to wring out. The average US inflation rate for the last 40 years is about 2.8%. So there's not a good scientific reason why you have to get down to 2.0 versus 2 point something. So if we start to see the inflation run rate get below 3% and it looks stable, that's part of the uh, key items that we would be looking at here is that that number looks stable. And we can look at the tips market, we can look at surveys of inflation expectations. If we can get to that point, that's where we can say that central bank can declare victory. The hope is we can get there by destroying more job openings versus jobs, but we have to get labor demand down to match uh, available labor supply. And so there have been plenty of signals suggesting that this will be a process, the yield curve being inverted, manufacturing PMIs going into negative territory. These have been present really since late 2022. But the concern about a downturn comes from the imbalanced nature of growth, and that really hasn't been fixed and won't be fixed until the labor market balances. So we're certainly welcoming the progress we've seen on the goods supply chain normalizing, what we have yet to see and really want to see to remove any of the concern about a downturn is for the labor market also to show balance. Maybe I could use that as a, an opening statement uh, <laughs> and turn the call back. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, thanks. So um, I, I guess there's two two key points, and I think um, it certainly has maybe some impact for, for uh, stock markets and, of course, bond markets. But um, if make some assumptions here, um, we we in this call it happy scenario where jolts comes down. Looks like labor is starting to to get in balance. Inflation, you know, trends towards that too. Probably doesn't hit too, as you said. I think your your judgment is very correct there. Getting to the last point probably doesn't stop at two. Takes you to one and a half or even one and a quarter if you really sort of. Um, you know, push the narrative uh, uh, as far as it will go. Uh, so I think you know, stopping before means that they have some runway to get to two if it was to land at two at some point. Um, what is your sort of kind of then forecast for interest rates in that scenario? So um, the Fed, um, uh, sort of inflation trends towards two, Labor market seems to be more imbalanced, as you described, uh, and the Fed feels, yeah, we can probably do a little bit on rates. Do you see that as a relatively like 95, 94, 95 shallow rate scenario, or do you see something different? So if, if we had a concern about recession five years ago, let's say, I would think the Fed funds forecast would be zero and the 10-year bond forecast, 10-year treasury 
for the U.S. might be something with a one handle, yeah. one and a quarter or yeah. something like that. Absolutely. That's the big difference that I see with this episode. So first off, the type of downturn we're talking about, because there are cushions like job openings instead of jobs, the base case is that this is a relatively mild downturn. So uh, the interest rate regime, I think, has shifted where even if you were to have a technical recession, if it's a mild recession, you cut the Fed funds rate certainly back to neutral, but you don't go into the hyper-stimulative process that was necessary over the last 15 years. So uh, you might have a, a Fed forecast around three, a 10-year bond forecast around three. Uh, and so you get a very flat yield curve in this world. Uh, and that's what I think is different. That's the regime change uh, that seems to be uh, coming and may last even beyond this business cycle. I mean, this may be the story uh, over the next several cycles. Now, this is not all that foreign. I, I don't see any reason the economy can't function at a 3% interest rate. We did that for, for most of the 80s and, and 90s. Uh, there may be new restrictions uh, on sectors that are heavily indebted. So, for instance, the government sector, uh, which has uh, had a, a long runway for 10 years to expand uh, deficits and debt, we'll have to adjust somewhat in that world. But this is not a strange world. It's just strange relative to the last 10 years. So I see a higher but not high as the, the basic answer for that question. Yeah, I think we've been sort of uh, toying around with what this rate cycle will look like um, in terms of uh, a trough interest rate. You know, and I think... Um, the Fed, I think, still has 275 as their sort of neutral rate. I, I think that's, that's going to be a very different one going forward. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it could be, um, and, you know, I threw a number out there internally just to kind of get people debating the issue. Uh, somewhere between, I don't know, 325, 350 as the, as the trough interest rate you know, come, say, 2025 <laughs> as a number. Um, and, um just so that we can start anchoring around what a post-recession period or post-interest rate period will look like. Um, and I think the debate, I think certainly over the next six to nine months, will start to move towards that because we, we, we're we now moving, if you like, the second derivative, which is, oh, rates are now not going up very much. And then there'll be talk about what will rates look like, you know, in, in, in 18 months' time. Um, any thoughts around what, you know, I threw a number out three fifty, just, just really to to create some debate, right? Uh, what's your, what's your thinking? Are you, are you more bearish than that number, or or um, are you three, or or uh, or even higher? Not a whole lot higher. So what's interesting is the New York Fed has resumed their publication of the uh, R star, yeah, it's the the, the uh, longer term real. Uh, rate that we should be thinking about. And it hasn't moved a lot since the pre-pandemic numbers. That's fortunate, right? So again, we'll get regular updates on this now, which is a very good thing, I think, for, for anchoring uh, markets. Mm. Uh, but this uh, Williams-Lobach and Holston-Williams-Lobach uh, methodology, I, I think, can be used as a starting point. And so if we still have a relatively low uh, starting R-star uh, rate that we could use as, a, as an anchor. Um, let's say inflation is not two, but is not too much above two. Do you add 50 basis points to that? Does that give you some estimate of where you have to get to over the next several years? And does the 10-year yield start to converge to that, that terminal type uh, of Fed funds rate? So uh, 350 may be a, a touch high, but uh, what would really be alarming is if you started to see the the real interest rate rise for some reason, uh, whether that's external or whether it's uh, geopolitical, whether it's um, you know something uh, that is being imposed on the system. But fortunately, thus far, it looks like we still have a relatively similar R star starting point, uh, it, it just with a a different inflation regime, uh, and so we step it up by the inflation change, but not much. More than that, um, maybe a little if we factor in some some risk premium, but you know, th those are the type of numbers I think we have to think about at this point. I would be more alarmed if we were talking about an R star real 
rate of two. Yeah, of course. Uh, that, so, would, yeah. Th- that would not be good for risky assets, I don't think. No. And I think that's, um, yeah, I mean, the last time we had anything like that was, I guess, early 90s. <laughs> I'm just sort of, you know, probably last time we were there or mid 90s. Yeah, certainly since the financial crisis 2008 or so, yeah. you've seen a dramatic decline yeah. in, in those uh, R-star numbers. And, and it's been across numerous countries and it looks like that's sticking. Yeah, yeah. And uh, absolutely fascinating. So, um, Jason, moving on t- to you, obviously, with that kind of backdrop, you know, wh- what are your thinking um, uh, uh, about markets uh, right now? I, I know at the moment it just seems as the most strategists, I, I think, wasn't it, the the average Wall Street strategist at the beginning of the year had 3,800, I think, was the average, was the average right. uh, uh, S&P target for, for the year. Um, and obviously you've seen sort of, I guess, probably probably the more sort of famous ones in, in Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley to taking down a bit of mayor culpa with, with, with his numbers. Um, and I think in general, I think investor behavior, certainly out of my view, um, has been investor behavior has still been relatively cautious. I, I think people are not sort of, you know, if you look at sort of equity mutual flows or, or or even equity flows in general, they do have a bit of a bearish tone to them. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, Mose, I think that's right. But by the same token, if you look at the, the market this year, the, the uh, there's a couple of things I would say. One is that um, all the market gains this year have come from multiple expansion. Yeah not from an expansion in um, actual earnings. Um, so there, there is a slight expansion in expectations for earnings next year in 2024. So, um, and I think that's part of the reason why, and I would include myself in this camp, uh, strategists were a little bit more uh, cautious or bearish uh, even, just because it, it's it would be hard to make an intellectual case. It would have been hard to make an intellectual case for multiple expansion at the at the start of the year and, and frankly yeah. i think it's pretty hard to make it it's even harder to make it now yeah um, so that's the first thing i would say the second thing i i would say is that uh, ironically we just kind of point this out is that the bulk of the s p 500's returns this year uh came after silicon valley bank failed that it, actually if you look at uh, the s p 500 s p 500 um, rallied about 7% in January and February, but then it started to slip and was only up about a half a percent, 58 basis points the day before Silicon Valley Bank failed. And then after that, the market basically just took off. And we could debate you know, why, why that is. I think part of it, at least, is the fact that the Fed flooded the system with about $400 billion dollars uh, on its balance sheet, it, it's suspended or offset QT, uh, however you want to say it, um, in that period. And then you also had a drawdown uh, in, the, in the Treasury general account during that period. But listen, I'm not making any excuses. The economy has been stronger than people had expected. Um, the earnings haven't really um, kind of come through yet. Uh, and so that's, uh, I would say that's a little bit of the trick. Uh, maybe the last thing I would say is that just from a very long-term perspective, if one thinks, as as Don was alluding to, and I would say I think too, that you're um, in a period in which long-term interest rates are likely going to have uh, higher lows and higher highs, um, that also should have an impact on earnings multiples uh in the future right because when we uh, to take a very extreme example in 1982 to use very round numbers um in the early 80s i believe the fed funds rate uh topped out at 21 or 22 percent uh the s p 500 was trading at six times earnings with a six percent yield um you didn't know it and it took a while to convince the markets that this was real uh, that the Fed had actually broken the back of inflation. But once you did, uh, it was one of the greatest springboards for for risk asset returns imaginable, really, for 40 years. Um, if you believe, as I believe now, that's going to be very difficult to achieve without 
some sort of manna from heaven, you know, without AI or some sort of massive productivity enhancement, which is, of course, possible, um, you're probably looking at kind of the opposite, uh, right? Some, a period of time in which multiples will probably restrain long-term returns uh, over a period of time. And so that's just the, I, I wouldn't say I'm overly bearish, but I'm also, I continue to be kind of cautious uh, in that uh, in that regard, just given what uh, Don's uh, view is of, of the economy and, and long-term interest rates. So um, just thinking about um, earnings and obviously earnings as we, uh, you're quite right, you know, we've had multiples, you know, expand earnings, um, this looked like a reasonable quarter for for um, you know for earnings. I mean, nothing spectacular, but you know, you, you, I guess a bit more normal than we've had, say, the last two quarters uh, in terms of earnings and earnings progression. Um, um, what are you thinking about for later Q4? Because obviously margins are starting to kind of come back a bit, even though demand maybe uh, you know uh, revenues may be a little bit more strained if if the economy is slowing down. Um, what are you thinking about earnings as we go into Q4 and then for next year? Yeah, so earnings uh, this year, just to, for, just to back up for a second, 2023, just to use round numbers for S&P 500 operating earnings, you know, very round numbers. They were maybe 222 last year. And, and just talking with our team this morning, there, there's an assumption they come in about 210 uh, this year. So actually a slight contraction uh, in earnings uh, for next year. And then, um, uh, what concerns me is that the sell side is using 245 or 246 for uh, 2024 earnings numbers, which uh, would be a very healthy, you know, 12, 13% increase. That seems to me to be very difficult to achieve, given the fact that you're starting at full employment. Uh, and um, again, now perhaps, perhaps it's the productivity enhancement, perhaps the earnings gains are focused in, in a relatively small group of companies. But here again, I would argue it's it's really hard to uh, make a strong case that earnings expectations aren't probably too optimistic uh, for next year. A lot of this depends on whether there will be a recession or not. I mean, I, I do think, uh, Moses, as you're pointing out, people are cautious, uh, but I'd also say they're not overly uh, pessimistic either because especially right now at least on the street most people are in the soft landing camp there's very few yeah. people that are in the hard landing camp makes sense just given what's happened uh so far this year but um uh, events have a habit of, of making some of these things uh perhaps more more real than you thought they they might have been so um I, I think there should be a healthy respect for the idea that monetary policy still hasn't fully worked its way through the system. No, I, th I think it's fair. I, I think um, going to something that uh, you know Don mentioned, I, I think at some point, you know, what leads to say a, a market pullback could well be this tension between, you know, the Federal Reserve sticking with rates and the market looking for rate cuts at some point, right? I, I think you're going to get this tension as we did in 2018, for example, late 18, if you recall, we had that tension yeah, with, uh, with with Powell sort of um, you know, raising interest rates and the fairly dreadful um, Donald Trump afterwards <laughs> was, uh, was gunning for right. him. Um, but um, the Fed, yeah. if I can just hop in here, I... Yeah. I think you're right. I think most of our clients are expecting Fed rate cuts, let's say, in the next six, sometime over the next six months. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. my view is that the surprise could just be that they stay higher for longer, that that you may not have, and this is really Don's bailiwick, but it's you just don't have enough evidence if the Fed is, is true to its word, that it, it doesn't want to repeat the stop and go monetary policies of the 70s. But it's just it, it stays true to its word and says we're just going to keep rates at this level. We may not need to hike much more, but uh, we want to wait and see. The other big moving part of this, and um, it is just that we have an election in the United States yep. uh, next year, yeah. and so the Fed, um, I think, generally does a pretty good job of staying out of politics. Uh, but um, 
whether other people allow them to stay out of politics or not is another is another question. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Fed became a political issue uh, in the latter part of this year going into next year. Yeah, well, you can certainly see the the storms bring up the Fed around this particular <laughs> issue. You know, if I was there, I just want to get all the rate hikes out of the way and, and, um, and uh, you know, try to sort of... Uh, maybe sneak one in cut by the time we get to the election and not get too 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 involved with it. I'm, I'm sure that's on well not yet on their minds but certainly will be when they come back from holiday um the um um the other sort of um a thought process certainly around the S&P in particular has been and um you know in the old days whenever we wanted to get defensive you know we'd buy you know I Classically, you'd buy Philip Morris, you'd buy, um, uh, you know, some of the uh, Staples companies, maybe healthcare. That hasn't worked this year. No. And and one of the sort of thoughts that I had um, was thinking about this is that are the new defensives, the Apples, the Microsofts of this world, where, you know, as we saw in Apple's results last week, you know, there's been hasn't been any revenue growth for many a quarter, um, but the stock is still ripped and, you know, still, uh, you know, has done pretty well for the full year. And, you know, is Apple the, the new Philip Morris? Well, I, I think that uh, you're onto something there because if we talk about the Magnificent Seven, we say, you know, what what is, what makes those companies, what has made the traditional companies so defensive? It's largely the fact that they're shorter duration equities that that generate a ton of cash flow and so right so whether it's philip morris or campbell soup or what what have you um come hell or high water they're going to generate some sort of cash flow which gives them some flexibility to either buy back stock or maintain the dividend or perhaps even increase the dividend and you'd have to say those magnificent seven companies um have that ability in spades right it's not so Technology, I think, gets painted with a very broad brush, but the fact of the matter is that there there are a not insignificant number of, let's say, smaller cap technology companies that don't have much in the way of corporate profits or cash flows. In my opinion, those are risky, uh, given where interest rates are. But the very large companies that you're pointing out, frankly, um, I wouldn't short any of those companies if you put a gun to my head. Uh, and, I, you know, they are in some ways, I think, the new defensives. Um, it doesn't mean that they won't have some pullbacks because of the valuations, but they are decent places to hide. And they've also, I, I would argue, they've benefited dramatically from just interest earnings uh, on their enormous cash balances. So that, that's been, you know, another moving part in this that, been a long time since anyone really viewed their cash as a revenue generator, but but it 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 is uh, for the time being. Yeah, that was so. so, so I, I think I could certainly agree with you. The amount of cash holds that they have, earning five percent plus, uh, is uh, quite significant. Uh, whereas before, it was just literally burning a um, a hole in your pocket. Right. You know, you need to get it off uh, off your balance sheet as quickly as possible, but. You probably don't need to do that as uh, as much. I guess the other thing is things like AI, um, as it sort of um, uh, starts to kind of rip through the economy, which I, I think undoubtedly we all believe there will be some uh, touch of AI now in our day to day lives, or there already is, but there will be even more, you know, going forward. Um, the biggest beneficiaries are the ones who actually can afford all the kit that is so expensive, and and those are the large cap companies. Um, it, it is definitely a crowding out of, or even technology. Well, I think I, I think that's fair, and I, I may I might defer to Don on this because we're we're wrestling with this bit. I have to say, uh, in that um, we think it's real, uh, but whether it's evolutionary real or revolutionary real, we, we're probably of the view that it's maybe too early to tell. That, that this may it may take us a, a year or two to really fully understand what the implications of this are, and it, it makes it difficult as a stock picker because obviously the stocks will probably have moved uh, greatly, uh, it, you know, while, while you're finding out uh, uh, one way or another. So um, 
it's not not the easiest uh, theme to play. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Don, any, well, from an economic perspective, I mean, obviously very difficult to model and any virtually impossible to figure out what this all means for us. But, but um, you know, any sort of initial thoughts from your side? Yeah, so one of the good things about this year is just as all the travel is reopened, I've been able to spend a good amount of time, you know, on the road, uh, seeing, seeing our clients. So spent uh, some time on, on the West coast uh, here in the, in the U S uh, and, and just the first thing I'd say is some of the questions I'm getting in, in some of those meetings around this advancement seem this is different than some of the other things in the last decade. So I had to, you know, the, serious institutional investor ask in a meeting, you know, what if GDP is 10% because of AI? And, and, you know, it's just a thought experiment. It's a question, but, you know, that didn't come up with the metaverse or, you know, with crypto or with 3D printing. Or, so there have been a lot of things that have hit the economy over the last decade in, in you know, positive ways. But this seems different. And so as best I can tell, the, the excitement is less about this particular tool and more about whether this is the case that proves there's a use, meaning uh, so uh, there's a, uh, a, a language program that is outperforming. Uh, I get the sense that's what is exciting people in the tech space is that there are algorithms that you can design and you know, read, read trillions of examples. And basically by doing that, you can write a well-structured essay, at least as good as the average human, if not better. Uh, it's not obvious that was going to happen. You, you could probably get something good, but it's generating something really good. And, and so I think the optimism is coming from the idea that, well, well, maybe what it's doing is it's discovering some underlying structure to language that was always there, but hard to articulate. Yet if you just kind of through brute force study a trillion examples of it, you can find it. You can find structure in something that is hard to otherwise uh, pinpoint. And, and so that's where I think the excitement's coming from. It's less that we can use this particular tool for X, Y, or Z, because that's that's possible. But it's that what we really have is an X-ray machine for structure. And we're going to take this type of process and apply it to any other uh, big database. Can we apply it to organic chemistry and, and scan for what type of structure might be there that's useful for drug testing. Maybe it can't give you the answer, but maybe it can narrow down the space to something more, more manageable. Or if I'm designing a subway system underneath the city, is there a best way to do that? Is there an underlying structure that should be followed? And if I feed in enough examples, can I find that? And um, I think that's where the excitement's coming from. So I guess I would say my perception, just being on the road and listening uh, is this is this is different it has the potential to be uh something much much bigger no i completely agree i think you know i think virtually every investment management firm that's something i speak to including ourselves have various people working on different verses of chat with gpt and and uh you know see how we can sort of streamline you know uh everything from you know, uh, fact sheets that we need to produce or written material or anything else that we do. It, it's, uh, and of course, all the all, all the data that can be restructured and analytics that come from earnings calls and so on and so forth. I mean, it's just quite sort of mind-blowing, even the investment management industry. Uh, I know that certainly my bosses have, have talked talk to me about uh, AI CIOs, so uh, I better watch out at some point. <laughs> um, the... Yeah. Um, um, and so I, I completely agree. I, I think there's uh, obviously with any sort of hype cycle, there's a lot of hype um, uh, and there always is. And we underestimate, you know, classically, we overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term. Uh, and I think that uh, certainly feels um, the same way um, that uh, there are so many use cases that, that uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions of use cases i think uh, are possible and i and i think that uh, is where i think the the general excitement uh, you know comes through uh, any thoughts of uh, or any work that you've seen suggesting that it will replace people or you know what are the what are the sort of 
productivity sort of gains that could be achieved? Anything well, serious so far? I have to imagine it will replace some workers, but it's probably a good thing. Mm. Uh, I think history shows that anytime we have labor-saving technology, uh, we should embrace it. Uh, and uh, if we go back far enough, uh, a good portion of the economy was was agriculture-based, and that became industry-based, manufacturing-based, and now it's services-based. Uh, so we freed up time to develop new industries and new employment, which can also be productive. So instead of farming, we do logistics and statistics and just-in-time inventory and research science and computer programming, and, and that's the next a generation of productivity improvement. So uh, I would have to imagine it's disruptive uh, if it's as powerful as expected. But there's nothing I could think of that would say you want to lean against that. You want to lean towards that because it's probably coming anyway uh, if it's as powerful as as we think it can be. No, you know, that's no. if I could just hop in here, I think that's that is, I, I feel very strongly, Don and I are on the same page on this, that that is the right economic answer, mm. right? Um, and not to bring politics back into this, but the, the, the question will be, obviously, to what extent uh, political forces will allow uh, a full and unencumbered use of this technology if it appears as if it's going to be as disruptive as it, it can be. Mm. Um, you know, I think about, I have uh, kids that are college age and um, so many people have been telling them to learn how to code uh, for the last 10 years. And now you're finding, you know, that's probably, unless you're maybe a master coder or unless you're one of the top in the world, that's probably not something you're going to, may not be a skill that's as useful as you might've thought it was five years ago. And so there'll, there'll be, there are a lot of vested interests um, really on both sides of this issue, which will also make it very fascinating. Um, but, and I, I think I, I, two things you both said I'd loved. One, Don, you said x-ray for, um, called it x-ray for structure. Mm. Love that. Mm. And then, uh, Mose, you said, um, which I agree with, we tend to overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term. And um, I think those are those are very good, both very very good insights on, on this on this issue. No, absolutely. So, moving um, um, on to Jason, I really want to. You always have always very insightful discussions around the future of the industry and how the industry is coping. Uh, just before we came on air, we w were discussing um, uh, Dan Loeb's. Uh, commentary on you know single shorting of, of stocks and why that's become a very difficult sort of case and obviously this is all built around the sort of the meme worlds that we live in uh <laughs> and 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 i guess a, another sort of a new um a nuclear weapon of destruction is is a very short day options that uh right. that, that can create a lot of leverage for relatively little amount of money um, which is obviously a financial innovation no one talks about, actually, I've noticed. But um, um, uh, any sort of thoughts around that? And, and, of course, any other things that you think are very relevant for, for today's discussion? Well, listen, I think, and, I, and I, we all have our biases, and as, as you know, you know I've, I've, had, uh, I've been skeptical of private equity, yeah. um, you know, to my detriment, actually, to, uh, as an asset class, or at least I, I think that there's, there's been a period of time where clearly I would say QE has been, I can't think of an industry that's benefited more from quantitative easing than the private equity uh, industry. And which means that it's, um, it, it was best to be a levered long in a period in which interest rates are close to zero. Yeah. Um, now that interest rates are meaningfully, short rates are meaningfully higher. It seems to me that, um, if I were a fiduciary, I would look to lighten up my private equity holdings and look to increase my exposure to hedge funds and other absolute return strategies, just to the extent to which the, the differences between winners and losers will probably be greater. Um, and so uh, Dan Loeb, uh, enormous respect for him, 
Um, but, um, and I understand the difficulty of shorting uh, is very, very difficult uh, in today's world. By the same token, this may be a, a period of time where it actually starts to work better uh, for some of the reasons that we we talked about, mainly just because the dispersion returns will probably be wider. Um, yeah, I think if if we sort of look at dispersion returns, say pre QE, uh, essentially uh, pre two thousand and nine, uh, dispersion was obviously a lot higher, both geographically across sectors, across stocks, and and obviously you know we had a great heyday of of kind of hedge fund stroke absolute return investing you know, from, so I call it mid-90s, late-90s to, to basically 2009, where right. it all became, you know, very, very difficult. So I think a, a more normalized interest rate environment, maybe a more normalized macroeconomic environment will will allow that to happen. Uh, so, yeah, I would certainly be in that, um, uh, you know, in that, in that camp. Um, any sort of preferences around... Hedge fund strategy, if traditional long short will make a comeback, or, or is that, uh, or are we going to be sort of hybriding towards kind of more macro stuff? No, I, I personally, I think the tradition, the more traditional long short should, uh, again, maybe look at what you know. I'm, I'm trying to do the, uh, I'm trying to say what, what is my anti QE yeah. policy, right? Like, right. what is the what you know what what worked exceptionally well during qe and what didn't work yeah. and then let me try to do the opposite and one of the things one of the exercises we did is we, we looked at the hedge fund return index long short um index and what you found is that during the qe period that index underperformed the s p 500 every year for 13 years wow. and whereas before that before the we looked at 17 years of data before that, back to 1990. It, it was very random. It, it was you know, some years hedge fund long short would would outperform. Some years the S&P would outperform. But once you got into QE, it was a, a string of 13 years of underperformance. Mm. And it strikes me that now, uh, and of course, no one likes to see companies go out of business or go bankrupt. But lo and behold, this this year, the last year or two, you're actually starting to see some companies fail and um it's unfortunate but that's part and parcel of of free markets and what makes them work and and what makes you i think what allows productivity to take hold and the better allocation of capital uh and all the rest of it so i i think it's again it's an unfortunate part of the system but it's a good thing and it certainly is a good thing for for hedge funds uh, that are trained to to look at value look at look at things other than just momentum Hopefully, a whole new breed of Dan Loeb's will will appear over the next sort of so. ten to fifteen years. Yeah, uh, it will probably need a um, you know culturally, uh, you know, a group that looks uh, maybe a little bit more different than the uh, than say the group over the last fifteen years because they said that that group just haven't been. I've call it a vintage, a decade vintage. We certainly weren't able to to perform as well as uh, as, as the previous ones, which I, I think yeah. is is actually also very interesting that the survivors that survived the last thirteen years will probably come out of it possibly a little bit stronger. Yeah, I think so. Great. So, um, just the um, last few minutes, um, Don. Any sort of last comments you wanted to make uh, about uh, maybe something that we haven't talked about today? So it is worth, I think, spending a minute on you know, what if the soft landing happens, right? So uh, because it's a probability we have to consider. So what would the yield curve be saying if there's a soft landing, as an example? So the yield curve being inverted like it is would tell us that inflation has to come down and it has to come down fast and it has to stay down. And I think the debate is, does that happen with pain or without pain? And I think the base case is, well, usually that would happen with some pain, usually pain in the labor market. But is it possible this time is unique and that inflation comes down without pain? It's, it's worth considering. But what that would say to me is the, the, the trade that isn't being priced in is some sort of inflation reacceleration. The worst thing that could happen here 
is whether it's commodities first or some hint at longer term inflation expectations changing, that's where the, the real risk is right now. If that anchor doesn't hold, because it's held so far, we've had very high inflation rates over the last two years, but the longer term surveys and market-based measures were fine. So that's that's good. If that starts to go, that's where I would say the real pain would, would, uh, would come from. Um, again, not the... Uh, the base case, because I think the base case is we have slack that develops in a more traditional fashion. But the, the yield curve, as an example, is requiring inflation to come down. Uh, maybe there's a pathway to do that without pain in the labor market, but inflation has to stay down too, and that that anchor has to stay in place. Very well said. I think that's uh, certainly one of the the, the big puzzles of this uh, period, certainly over the last eighteen months, is. You know what the uh, inverted yield curve um, is uh, telling us, and obviously has a great track record in predicting recession. So, you know, there's just a natural tendency to expect it, right? And uh, and obviously inflation expectations. Um, I mean, that's uh, going to be, you know, I guess the the two paths, and certainly one to watch out for very very carefully. So, thanks, uh, thanks, Don, uh, Jason. Anything from from your side? Actually, one question I did have. Before you go, is is um, is you know what's the biggest pushback you get at the moment? Well, listen, I I think to the extent to which we've been cautious this year, the biggest pushback is you know are you just missing it? Are you are you um, you know do the old rules still apply? Um, and uh, so, which is to say that you know one of the old rules was the rule of twenty where you take 20 and you subtract out the inflation rate. And, and over a long period of time, that was the PE. That was a very good, a pretty good, it was a pretty reliable indicator. Um, but now a lot of people are questioning, as you said, everything really, yield curve, um, what, what a, a, a normalized PE uh, is. So that's the biggest pushback we're getting. And it really is, is you know, uh, are, is this time really different? For a variety, whether it's QE or whatever it is, so um, whether it's uh, whether it's AI or whether it's uh, productivity potential for productivity enhancements, um, I'm disinclined to think. I, I do think that the old rules do tend to assert themselves over time, uh, but that is the biggest pushback um, I'm getting. The other one, other subject, uh, most just before we leave is that I, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm trying to think more about is just um, a change in globalization. I, I don't want to say a full deglobalization, but, but certainly I think one of the hopes of globalization um, forever, but certainly since uh, 1989 really was that it would make non-Western countries more Western uh, in some ways. Right. And I, I think there are real, debates about that now when you're seeing what's happening with Russia or seeing what's, what's happening with China and what impact that has on inflation, what impact that has on um, defense spending, a, a variety of things in the West where, um, again, it was it was a very strong tailwind uh, for lower inflation and stronger growth. And and obviously the, the nature of, of globalization is changing and uh, in, in how that might impact the the global economic outlook no i think that's a very very good good question and uh something that is you know certainly as we move into this more partitioned world you know um uh, i always think of uh, you know trade routes are going to become vertical rather than lateral right <laughs> it was a very lateral world we lived in now possibly it's going to be more vertical um yeah you, you end up sort of doing business much more with your your partners are above you or below you with you know, depending on where you are and which continent you're in. Um, right. uh, and I think that um, is something very, very relevant. And I, and I do think that it you know, will lead to, to you know, um, higher inflation um, because that flexibility that you had before is is no longer there. Uh, but obviously, you know, that may take, you know, to one of the points that Don made, it may take a cycle or two for us to recognize that the, 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 that comes through, and um, and so it's you know quite quite difficult, quite challenging to to try and sort of um, uh, you know f figure that out. I think certainly for for my part, I think as um, uh, as onshoring and reshoring becomes uh, a much bigger 
um, part of the equation, certainly for the US, um, certainly around technology, um, chip making and so on and so forth, which I think is inevitable. Um, it, you know, there are probably there are probably some benefits to that as well, which we probably don't quite realize. Um, the other thing is, um, which again, we just know is there, is demographics. Um, and certainly when I look at, um, um, at you know, deflationary forces, because I, I, I personally believe those deflationary forces are still there, we still face an aging population uh, around the world. And now we've, if you like, got the mother of all experience, experiments coming up over the next 50 years in China, where, you know, based on sort of current forecasts, uh, by the end of this century, China's population will be you know, somewhere between 40 and 45% lower. Um, and, um, uh, you know, when you kind of think in that sort of context and, you know, certainly for us old timers, you know, we remember when Japan was exporting deflation, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, in, the, in the sort of 80s and 90s. Um, and, um, and I just wonder whether we, we are going to see those trends, i.e. China becoming, um, a, it became a deflationary force because it outsourced to them, but now becoming a deflationary force as their population contracts, you know, uh, rather dramatically. Um, and, I, and I think that people haven't really started to, to think about that. And China real estate is a good example of something that is quite obvious if your population halves, you know, real estate, certainly in rural areas or in non-major cities, is going to be is is going to yeah. be an asset class you just do not want to be in <laughs> over the next sort of fifty years. Um, but uh, you know, and that's something that we haven't seen. You know, I don't think we've seen such a large economy have. Um, you know, obviously we've seen it in Japan, and we know some of the consequences of that. But but uh, we we haven't seen a Chinese economy that's going to have a you know. Uh, uh, huge hundreds of millions of people that are going to disappear. It's a great point. Uh, so I think anyway, I think all of these things just, you know, are very, very interesting. Um, and, you know, I, I think, um, you know, gentlemen, you'd be just, again, always amazing hitting the the key points uh, yet again in terms of what drives these markets. And I think certainly also opening the discussion um, over the next uh three, six, 12, maybe 10 years <laughs> about uh, about some of the forces they're driving the market. So no, thank you very much again uh, for uh, Jason joining and uh, Don. Uh, real pleasure. I hope to be out in uh, uh, New York um, sometime in, uh, in October. So I'll uh, certainly reach out and uh, we can certainly um, uh, chew the tobacco a little bit more. <laughs> That's right. We look forward to seeing you, Wubs. Thank you very much. Uh, so with that, thank you very much, everybody, for uh, listening in. Uh, I think another great episode with uh, wonderful speakers. And then uh, we'll catch you again next time. Thank you. Bye.